So Matthew chapter 13, starting at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Well, thank you very much, Esme, for that reading. And uh, good morning, everybody. Well, uh, how about this for a practical joke? A few years ago, uh, for reasons known only to themselves, two men broke into a department store in central London, but they didn't steal anything. Instead, they spent several hours wandering around just swapping price tags. (laughs) So that by the time they left, Everything in the shop had changed value. Expensive things had become cheap, and cheap things expensive. So the first customers in through the doors that morning were bemused to find they could pick up a Rolex watch for 50p, while a packet of Smarties would set them back £3,000. I don't know why they did it. It's a bit pointless. Maybe it was a prank or a dare, and maybe they were drunk. Who knows? But it's not a bad picture, actually, of the experience that I hope some of us are going to have this morning as we give our attention to these words of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus wants to turn what we value on its head, back to front, upside down. He's going to show us how to value the one thing that matters in the light of everything else He's going to show us how to value our lives rightly so that we don't miss out on the one precious thing in life that really matters. And he's going to do this by means of the two short parables that Esme just read for us. You might want to turn back there now if you haven't already, 44 to 46 of Matthew 13. Now before we look at them, I just want to say a word about what it is we are actually looking at. So I just mentioned the word parable, a kind of little short story that Jesus has been using through this chapter. And it might be that you're under the impression that parables are kind of simple stories to illustrate complex things for simple country people. That's what I was taught at RE at school. And maybe you were taught something similar, that Jesus is speaking to an audience who are not very well educated, and so he's using kind of sermon illustrations to make sure that people understand what he's saying. Well, not only is that a little bit patronizing to the audience to which he's speaking, it's also completely wrong. No, parables are not sermon illustrations. They're not trying to make clear a complex point. Something else is going on. Something bigger is going on in the parables. What Jesus is doing in the parables is he's giving us a concrete picture of a cosmic reality, a concrete picture 
of a concrete, a cosmic reality, a visible picture of an invisible reality. So if you look at the text, you'll see in each case he says the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like a concrete picture of a cosmic reality. We're going to see one more next week. See, all the way through Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And all the way through, we are contrasting the kingdom of heaven, the invisible reality, with the kingdom of earth. In fact, there are two kingdoms in this universe operating side by side, two worlds, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, the earthly kingdom and the heavenly kingdom, the visible kingdom and the invisible kingdom, the naturalistic universe, which you can see and touch and measure, and the supernatural universe, the other universe that you can't see. And so the parables are not just kind of illustrating complicated things, they are giving us concrete pictures of those cosmic realities, earthly, ordinary pictures, farming, fishing, baking, business, to help us grasp what is really going on in our universe. And that is why, if you just glance down at verse 51 in next week's passage, Jesus concludes this whole chapter of parables with this very simple but very important question, He says to the disciples, have you understood all these things? Have you understood all these things? That's how the chapter concludes, really. Now, why does he say that? Because it's possible, isn't it, to hear the parables and get nothing out of them at all. Just to hear the simple story, just to see the earthly reality, but not to make the connection to the invisible reality. Now, let me tell you what this means before we proceed. It means that as we give our attention this morning to these short sentences, just a few words on a page, which on the face of it are very ordinary, very simple, and perhaps very familiar to us, each of us is going to face an opportunity and a decision. An opportunity to have the roof blown off this naturalistic universe that the world insists is all there is. An opportunity to have our eyes opened to eternity. To have done to us what those men did in the department store. To have everything we value turned on its head. To have our lives recalibrated. Which, of course, if we take the opportunity, is going to be deeply uncomfortable. It's going to be challenging. But it's going to be important. And that means that by the end of our time, each of us is also going to face a decision. Whether to believe it. Whether we can believe this unseen reality that Jesus is speaking of. Or whether we will insist that actually all there is, is this life and what we can see. And so, I'm going to ask for God's help now as we look at these words of Jesus together. So that we will see, we'll grasp the opportunity, we'll make that decision. Why don't we just pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus came into this world to reveal your kingdom. And to show us the way to eternal life. Please help us now to discard all that distracts us. 
and to listen carefully to Jesus' life-changing words so we might see the truth, understand, and believe. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to look at these uh, two parables under two headings, a momentous opportunity, an ultimate decision. A momentous opportunity first. Let's read the first parable again, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy he went and sold all he had and bought the field. Now, at first reading, this story is what dreams are made of, isn't it? Who doesn't love a story of life-changing wealth unexpectedly discovered? We've all heard these stories in the news, haven't we? The old painting uncovered at the back of the attic that turns out to be a missing Renoir worth millions. An old necklace picked up at a car boot sale for a few pounds, taken to the Antiques Roadshow. Fiona Bruce tells the bemused owner it's more, worth more than their house. The long-forgotten computer hard drive with those early bitcoins suddenly remembered and password is dug up and they're cashed in for millions. The lottery ticket mislaid down the back of the sofa that turns out to be this month's jackpot. The inherited piece of paper that sat at the back of the filing cabinet with that funny little rainbow-colored Apple logo from 1980. The farmer who plows a field and stumbles upon a Saxon hoard. Great stories, aren't they? Sudden, unexpected, life-changing wealth beyond anything previously imagined. Well, that's the kind of story Jesus is telling at first sight, isn't it? Actually, the story Jesus tells is a little bit more likely, a little bit more common than any of those examples. Because in the first century world, banking was not very well established, and most forms of transferable wealth came in the form of physical materials like metal, heavy metal, precious metals, and jewels, and that was the safest way to store your savings. And if you were lucky enough to have accumulated savings, you could possibly take them to the banker who wasn't particularly trustworthy, or just stick them in a box or a jar and put them in the ground. Being careful, of course, to remember where you put it and not to die before you had the chance to enjoy your wealth. And this practice was especially common, of course, at times of social unrest or enemy invasion. Gather your pension, put it in the ground. But of course, sometimes you would forget or die. And the buried hoard would lie there, hidden and forgotten for decades or even centuries, waiting to be discovered. And that's where Jesus begins his story. Here comes that moment of chance. Notice this is not a treasure hunter. This is not the guy with his metal detector. This is an ordinary man walking along on an ordinary day. Perhaps he's on his way home from a hard day's work. His hand sandal hits something hard. He stoops down to have a look. He brushes the soil away. He opens the box. And one glance tells him his life is never going to be the same again. Treasure. What a delightful word. The Greek word here, thesaurus, captures it equally well. A glittering bounty, wealth and riches beyond anything imagined before. All his debts paid. 
his daily work unnecessary, all his worries over security and comfort for the rest of his life. Isn't it a great story? But I wonder if you notice, in Jesus' story, there is a catch, isn't there? That there's a catch that's important not to miss. See, in all those modern examples I gave, and they're all true stories, by the way, the person who discovers the treasure already owns it. They just hadn't realized they owned it. The painting in the, vat, the attic, the apple shares, the necklace from the car boot sale, already owned, already possessed, already paid for. And so those lucky people get to add to their wealth by their discovery. They don't need to sell the sofa to get hold of the lottery ticket. They already own the sofa. They don't need to sell the house to acquire the painting. It's their painting discovered in their attic. But notice this man discovers the treasure in somebody else's field. He's found the treasure and all its life-changing potential, but it's not yet his. In order to legitimately become the owner of the treasure, he'll have to become the owner of the field. And in order to become the owner of the field, he will have to, Jesus says, verse 44, sell all he had. Please don't worry about the ethics of this. That's to miss the point. This is before the rule that said you had to split the profits and so on. It's finders, keepers. And so this momentous opportunity brings the man face to face with a momentous decision. He's got to reevaluate his entire life. He's got to work out whether the treasure is worth divesting himself of everything to get one thing. Now, I wonder if you could imagine doing this. What would it look like for you, just at the physical level? Well, you'd put your house up for sale. That's the first thing you'd do, down to the estate agents. First offer accepted, no haggling. The car, webuyanycar.com. It's a great name for a company, isn't it? Rock bottom price, but you've done with the car. Empty your bank accounts, the ISA. Cash in the pension, you don't need that. What else have you got? Furniture. Off it goes to the second-hand shop. Your childhood stamp collection. There's a couple of nice examples there. It's still not enough. What else do you have? You start on the white goods, the fridge, the washing machine, the bike goes, the pictures on the wall, the golf clubs, the TV, the laptop, the mobile phone, even the mobile phone. You add up what you've got. It's still not enough. You strip the carpets and sell them. You dig up the plants from the garden and sell them. You take down the fence from the front garden, sell it to a scrap metal dealer. You cancel that holiday you booked and get a refund. You sell the dog to a good home. Forget the good home. You just sell the dog. Anything will do. Just give me the cash. You add it up again. It's still not enough. You take out your best clothes, your shoes. You put them on eBay. Still not enough. Finally, you go and book yourself a table at the car boot sale. You set out your buttons from your best coat, your spare pair of glasses, your belt. And you stand there until the last button is sold. And you're left standing in your oldest ragged jeans and your t-shirt and your flip-flops. And you've got a massive smile on your face. And you go and buy the field. Because notice something else. Look at what Jesus says in verse 44. 
in his, or what word would you add there? In his cold, rational calculation, in his joy, in his joy, he went, sold all he had and bought the field. There is not a shred of grim resolve or regret. This is not a sacrifice. This is not a difficult thing to do. The man knows this is his moment. This is his moment to gain. And actually his actions, if we are slightly worried about the ethics of it, why doesn't he tell the owner of the field and so on, he is in headlong pursuit of his own self-interest. This is for him. This is the thing that's going to make him happy forever. It's doing the best thing he can for him. And it's no sacrifice, no hardship, no cost-benefit analysis, no grim weighing up of the risks. It's a no-brainer. This is the best thing that's ever happened to him. A momentous opportunity. Well, that's the story Jesus tells. But what does it mean? What are we supposed to do with it? Well, think about this. Is there anything in this universe that you can think of that would cause you to act in such a reckless, outrageous way? What kind of treasure, what kind of opportunity would have to come into your life for you to joyfully impoverish yourself of all that you had, to give away every element of your life that had previously brought you joy, hope, meaning, security, comfort, identity, purpose, satisfaction, fulfillment, to hand it all over. Well, look at what Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. Now, how do you imagine the kingdom of heaven? Unfortunately, we have often had the wrong ideas in our heads, don't we? Because of the, the cartoons and the Greek philosophy that teaches the kingdom of heaven is a, a shadow of this world. It's a guy sitting on a cloud playing a harp and that kind of thing. But what has Matthew told us? What has Jesus told us about the kingdom of heaven? Well, I had a brainstorm with the trainees on Friday. It took us about two minutes to just leaf through Matthew's gospel. And this is some of the things we saw. You get to call God Father, Matthew 6, 9. You get the free forgiveness of your sins, Matthew 6, 14. You get treasure that lasts forever, that rust and moth cannot destroy, Matthew 6, 19. You receive God's provision for earthly needs, actually. Food and clothes, daily bread, 6.25. You get a new spiritual family, 12.50. You get a seat at the final banquet, 8.11. You get eternal life, 10.39. You get rest with God, 11.28. That's the kingdom of heaven. We did it with peas, because peas are the easiest word to alliterate presence of God, pardon from sin, provision of daily bed, protection from Satan and death, the promise of glory, participation in the life of God, perfection, purpose, permanence. 
We did it with Fs, second easiest, fatherhood, forgiveness, family, fellowship, fulfillment, future. You get the idea. That is, if you get the kingdom of heaven, you get everything. Everything that you've ever wanted, everything you've ever dreamed, you get what you were made for, forever. And Jesus is asking us to re-evaluate our life next to that. No wonder the man concludes it's a no-brainer. To get out a big mental pair of scales and on one side put the kingdom of heaven and on the other put our possessions, our achievements, our little ambitions and joys and hopes in this world. And so I wonder if you believe this this morning. I wonder if you would take the risk. I guess it becomes harder the more you have on the other side of the scales, which is why the rich young man in chapter 19 considers this, but he goes away sad, we are told, because he had great wealth. And it might be that you're thinking, well, is this just fiction? Is this for real? Do people really live like this? Do people actually take Jesus at his word? Well, if that's your question, I think it's fair to say, take a look at the ordinary Christian community and the ordinary Christian behavior around us. Because although we often fail, although we often get it wrong, you will see a pattern of behavior that backs this up. And Joe and Steve were talking about it earlier, weren't they? Just one example. And there are others like Steve and his family who who have chosen to take a lesser standard of living, chosen a less lucrative path, less educational prospects for their children and so on, for the sake of the work of the kingdom. They've made those choices that have disadvantaged themselves in this world just to be part of an unimpressive thing called church. There are those who stay. There are also those who go. Those who leave everything and go to the mission field and face danger and hardship and great disadvantage. Or you'll see people who give very generously, making themselves poorer for the sake of the kingdom. That's how we as a church, I've been able to buy this place and how we're going to develop it. Because many have given disadvantaging themselves for the sake of the kingdom. It's why many of our students spend time teaching our children at Sunday school or sharing the gospel with their friends instead of just pursuing the perfect exam results. It's why some people forego the benefits of marriage and family life in order to follow the Bible's standards of sexual behavior or to devote themselves to Christ's word. It's why people put up with the mockery of the world in the workplace for following Jesus. See, from one point of view, the Christian life can look irrational, can't it? But if you believe in the kingdom, it's a no-brainer. And as Steve said, it's great freedom. Now, of course, I'm asking you to look at the Christian community and, and see this. But, of course, we do fail as well. And sometimes you'll look at us and you wouldn't know that we did take Jesus at his word. Sometimes it looks, doesn't it, as if we're trying to have the best of both worlds. But our best... This is what Christians do because we remember we cannot miss out. 
As the missionary Jim Elliott famously said before, he was killed on the mission field. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Or as Jesus put it in 1626, what good will it be for a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? This is real freedom. And it manifests itself in all sorts of ways. Yesterday, Emma and I dropped off our last child at university. It was a big day. I'll try not to cry as I talk about it. 25 years of child raising has come to an end. And we came home to an empty nest. And unless you've been through this, it's hard to quite explain how difficult this this is. But as we went to sleep last night after a FaceTime chat with her, we told each other, actually, we're not worried. We're sad, but we're not one bit worried. See, we left her and her new flatmates, all of them, all of her flatmates, getting out of their minds with alcohol by 9 o'clock, clubbing by 11, all of them, first night, begging Lucy to come with her. She said this. She said, no, I'm not going to come. I hope you have a great time. I'm going to bed. I don't enjoy drinking. And I've got church in the morning. Would you like to come with me? Now, how does a young Christian man or woman cope with that pressure at university or at school? Pressure to conform, pressure to be popular, not to be the odd one out. How do you cope with it at work when you're the only one? How do you cope with the fear of missing out and to be so secure that you do it with joy? This parable tells you it's because you've already got the treasure. This is actually the thing that gives Christians bottle. This is what gives us courage because we do not fear missing out. This is Christianity. This is what a Christian is someone who has reevaluated life and can give up life because of the joy of knowing Jesus. Well, I wonder if you are attracted to this, but perhaps are not fully convinced. And maybe part of you is saying, well, well, maybe there's a halfway house. Maybe there is a way of having Jesus and keeping your old life, because that is the trap, isn't it, that we always fall into. Maybe you can be the person who finds the lottery ticket and gets to keep the sofa. Well, come with me to the second parable. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So at first sight, this is the same story told a second time, isn't it? Someone finds something of incomparable value and in their joy, they sell everything they have in order to acquire it. But there is one important difference, isn't there? 
Did you notice that whereas the first man was an ordinary man going about his ordinary life with no thought of treasure at all, this man is an expert who spends his whole life thinking about fine pearls. Now, pearls in the first century were prized even as much, or if not more, than gold, were virtually synonymous with beauty, luxury, and lavish wealth. And this man is a specialist, he's a connoisseur of fine pearls. And his life is all about seeking the best of the best. Despite this, when he comes across this pearl, he also, like the first man, has a moment of unexpected opportunity, and it leads to an equally radical, life-changing decision. Verse 46, when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Even though he spends his life dealing in pearls, this one takes his breath away. He's never seen anything like it. He's transfixed by it. He's overwhelmed by it. He has to have it. But here's the surprise, and here's the difference. So you don't have to be a financial genius to realize that from a business point of view, this is a completely irrational thing to do, which is why I think Jesus tells both stories in this order. See, selling everything to buy the field containing the treasure makes sense from a financial point of view. It's an investment. You can sell some of the treasure. You can live on the treasure. You could even buy back everything you got rid of, couldn't you? But what is this man going to do with this pearl? He could sell it. Yep. But then he'd be back where he started. It's absolutely useless. It's not a financial investment. It's a terrible business move. In fact, if you think about it, buying the pearl, the merchant has just brought his career to an end. And that is Jesus' point. For an expert in pearls, for someone who's been searching for truth and beauty and brilliance, this is it. There is no more. The search is over. This is what your life has been about. And so with the second parable, Jesus is making his point even more forcefully and more personal than the first one. See, in the first one, there's a bit of self-interest. There's nothing wrong with that. Do the best thing for you. Get the kingdom, you get everything. Fatherhood, family, forgiveness, future. But now Jesus wants us to focus in, what is the real value? The real value is beyond all those things. He is actually making an outrageous proposal that the real value of the kingdom is the king himself. The real value is him. See, think about what you value in life. Health, work, home, family, friends, fitness, sport. Maybe there's some daily pleasure, a little walk with the dog, the beauty of art and music, the magnificence of the created world. All of these are good things. But there are two problems with them. First, they can never satisfy. See, every man and woman has been made in the image of God for joy, for desire, for fulfillment. Which is why rich men always go and build space rockets. Have you noticed that? They get rich, they build a space rocket. 
I've been pondering this. Why is it they all do this? It's because they've got the whole world, and it's not enough. That is what the Bible tells us to expect. There is nothing in this universe that, as Tyndale put it, can make the whole heart glad, can make a person sing, dance, and leap for joy, apart from knowing our Creator through Jesus Christ. And the second problem, the second problem is they don't last. All of the treasure we acquire now will be lost through death in the end. And next week, we're going to think more about that. That moment when we stand face to face and give an account. Well, this week I took a friend out for coffee to a well-known coffee house in Lancaster, which I will not name. It's not something I do that often, tend to go to Greg's, but there you go. But on this occasion, I was very excited to use my loyalty card. Had this in my wallet. You know these loyalty cards, you get a little stamp every time you get a coffee. Had this in my wallet for about five years. And I finally got to the point where I just, I just had one more stamp to collect. And I was going to get a free cup of coffee. And I read it, it says very clearly, buy nine coffees, get your tenth on us. And so now it was time to cash in. Handed the card over. The lady pushed it back with a disdainful look on her face and said, I'm sorry, we don't accept those anymore. Loyalty card. <laughs> I was with a friend, so I gritted my teeth and gave the politest reply I could and paid for two coffees. But if there had been a thought bubble above my head, it would not have been a very pleasant sight. But you see, that is what life is going to be like on the last day. All the things that we have achieved, all the things that we have owned, that we've taken comfort in, the little empires, however grand or modest, that we've built around ourselves, the little stamps of approval that we have collected from society, from religion or self, as we go through life, all of it will be worthless on the last day, based on a false promise. The kingdom of heaven will not recognize the currency of our pathetic little achievements. Whether we have built a space rocket or whether we've done something else, none of it will be enough. But if we have aligned ourselves in this world with the one man who, by his death on the cross and his resurrection, can take us into the next world, then there'll be a different outcome. And so, friends, it matters now what you make of Jesus. It matters. Way back in the Old Testament, many years before Jesus, the psalmist in Psalm 73 put his feelings this way. He looked around him and he said, I shall want it all this. I was envious of all of this. I wanted the things that those who have things have. And then he came to this conclusion. He said, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
That's the prayer, isn't it, of someone who has found the pearl of Jesus Christ. All their longing, all their searching has come to an end. And in his kindness, Jesus tells these two parables so that we will see the same thing. So we will see the value of knowing him. That we will revalue our lives around him before it's too late. That each of us might be captivated by his love, his beauty, his goodness, his glory. As someone who knows they are forgiven by his sacrifice must be. And we can reorder our lives around him as we prepare to meet him on the last day. Well, I'm going to invite you to say a prayer that you'll find on the bottom of the notice sheet that will enable us to do that. You may have prayed this kind of prayer before. This might be the first time. But I'll give you a moment to read it and then I'll lead it. And if you echo this prayer in your heart, you will today have begun a new way of life with a new future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus came into our world to show us the way into your eternal kingdom by dying for our sins and rising again to give us eternal life. I admit that this is more than I could ever deserve and far better than I could ever hope. Thank you that all my searching has now come to an end in him. Amen.